I like to begin by rocking the body gently, a little bit of movement, maybe moving the head. Just loosening up any tension or any leaning toward the computer. And beginning to sense the weight of the body on your seat. And releasing the belly, allowing the body to settle right here, right now. And turning the attention to the sensations of touch in one hand. Just receiving, just noticing whatever sensations of touch are happening in the hand.
staying with the sensations of touch in the hand. And perhaps beginning to notice whether they are pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Resting the mind on the sensations of touch in the hand.
Okay, that was our meditation practice for today. Happy to uh, talk about any reflections or questions about that at the end of our time together. But for now, as usual, going to go on with the Dhamma talk. One other thing I want to mention is that uh, sometimes we're turning on the closed captions. Y'all are, uh, we can do that, but I've looked at them and they can be actually more confusing than helpful a lot of the time. So just try to listen carefully. And uh, if there's something that's of particular interest, we can sometimes get a transcript done through the AI. Okay. All right. Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato Arato Summa Sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami It's early December, and that means that we are approaching the one of the biggest holidays of the Buddhist calendar, at least in some countries, and that is December 8th, in Japanese Rohatsu. And in Japan, that day is celebrated as the day of the Buddha's awakening, the Buddha's enlightenment day, December 8th. Yay, it's a big day. <laughs> in, uh, in other Buddhist countries, the enlightenment, the birth and the death of the passing into Parinirvana of the Buddha is all celebrated on one day, that's Vesak, that usually happens in May, April, or May in other countries. But um, in some countries, it's celebrated like this. December 8th is Buddha's birthday, and then his uh, birth in April, and uh, his death in February. So I don't know why it's done separately. Maybe more opportunities for cake? I'm not sure. <laughs> but... Because uh, it's coming up, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Buddha's enlightenment, and not from the perspective of telling the story. That might I might do that next week, but for this week, what I want to do is talk about the content of the Buddha's awakening. What was it that he saw? What was it that he learned on that night? So the stories that we have about this are about him explaining that he 
he learned something called the three, what he later called the three knowledges. And all three of them relate to kama, kama in Pali or karma in Sanskrit. And this topic can be one that is a little tricky for folks. So I understand if there are feelings that come up, please. Uh, we can talk about that. We can certainly talk about that. I'm not asking you to, uh, I'm not expecting you, let's put it this way, to accept anything that you can't find in your own experience. But what I do want to do is talk about this third knowledge of the night, and that is a, a, a teaching called Paticca Samupada in Pali. Paticca Samupada means dependent origination, or sometimes it's called interdependent origination. And it's a fairly complex teaching, so I'm going to do the brief version today, but I think that you'll see that there are a couple of points, at least, which you can relate to in terms of your everyday experience. But since it's a little bit uh, more complex than some other things, I am actually going to make the most of the fact that we are all online and show you my screen here, where you can see this circle which is the way that this teaching is often depicted. And I'm going to be sharing some information that comes out of uh, Middle Length Discourse number 9, Majjhima Nikaya 9. And in that discourse, Majjhima Nikaya 9, is called Sammaditi Sutta, the Sutta of Right View. And it's a very sweet sutta where there are some monastics, and they're sitting around, and they're asking Venerable Sariputta. So Sariputta was one of the two of the Buddha's closest disciples. He was said to be one of the uh, most uh, capable of explaining the Buddha's teaching. And um, and they're asking him some questions. And in, in these his answers to these questions, he talks about the way that the Buddha defined these various things on the circle. But rather than start at the top of the circle, I want to start over here on the side somewhere so that we can start at a place that I think you can relate to. So we have this area here, the six sense fields, or here it says the six sense bases. Yeah, so what does that mean? That means your ears, your literal ears, eyes, nose, mouth, your skin, which is for feeling, uh, and the mind, so six of them. So there's hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, or, or uh, awareness as a sense field. So those are your six senses as they're described in Buddhism. So 
interesting as usual that we see that the mind and the body are both described as instruments or fields of uh, possibility, fields of interaction with the world. And I think that we know this intuitively, right? We just experience this from day to day in our lives. So you have your sense bases or your sense fields. And then you have this thing called contact. So what's contact? Contact is when something impacts your sense field. Something comes into that field of awareness. So for example, if you uh, if there is an odor that's in the room and it meets your nose and you are conscious enough to attend to that, then there's a point, there's a moment of contact where you can smell something. So a, a moment of smell is a moment of contact. And the same thing with the other senses. So again, this is something that's happening all day long. Contacts are happening with the body. A contact with the mind is when a thought is known by the mind. So when you notice yourself thinking about something, that is a contact, uh, what we would call a contact with the mind as a sense organ. So this is happening, but then what happens after the contact happens, then there is this feeling tone. So just like when we were meditating just now, so you have a sensation in your hand, let's say. You can feel your hand touching your clothing, let's say, as an example. And you, But that feeling has a tone to it. It either has a pleasant tone to it, or it has an unpleasant tone to it, or it's kind of neutral, like you can't really tell whether it's nice or not nice. And that also is happening with every single contact. So now the way that this works is that what the Buddha said was, the, each thing is the necessary condition for the next one. So you have to have sense organs, sense fields, in order to have sense contact, right? So if you didn't have eyes, for example, then you can't have the visual sense contact. So the thing, the sense spaces are necessary for the contact to happen, and the contact is necessary for the feeling tone to arise. It's not the only condition, but it is the necessary condition. It is the one critical condition for it to arise. And then what happens next? What happens next is this thing called craving, tanha. And maybe you've heard this word tanha before. Tanha literally means thirst, thirstiness, like when you want to drink, you know, thirst. And we usually translate it as craving 
but it means something like wanting. So you're wanting that feeling tone, or you're pushing away. That's the other side of the wanting, is the wanting it to go away. So you want it to stay, or you want it to go away. So that's craving, and that happens next with the feeling tone. And right here, this tanha, this craving, that is mentioned in the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said, that phenomena right there, that thing that we do of wanting it to stay or wanting it to go away, that's what causes the suffering. This right here is said to be one of the links where we can break this chain, this chain of activity. By not doing that, pulling and pushing with our experience. And then it gets even more intense, and there is this upadana. Upadana means clinging, or it means grasping. So when there is this wanting something to stay or wanting something to go away, usually we tend to lean into that, and we give it importance, and we start to put our energy there, and we think about it. So we do all of these things that intensify that rather than stopping it. And what that leads to is this next step of becoming. So here's where I need to stop and say something more general again about the whole sequence. So the thing that runs this sequence is karma or kama. That's what makes this thing go. So when we have this grasping at our experience or this attachment to the experience or this clinging to the experience, then what that does is that it creates this tendency toward the arising of the next moment of consciousness. So you might think of it as like, um, we're always pulling the next moment of consciousness toward us. It's a constant state of pulling that next moment of consciousness toward us so that we have that sense of continuity that we think makes us safe, that we think makes us actually us. That sense of continuity that you feel like, oh, this is me. I got up in the morning, and then I did this thing, and then I did that thing. That comes from this pulling the next moment of consciousness along because of grasping at them at the moments of consciousness. Hmm? And I'll say more about what the alternative to that is in a second. <laughs> but anyway, so there is becoming. There is this, this arising of the next moment of consciousness. Now, you can understand this whole circle as talking about rebirth from lifetime to lifetime. Or you can understand this whole circle as talking about individual moments of the present, how moment by moment things happen. 
So the next moment is birth. So this, this becoming, this grasping at the next moment of consciousness happens. We pull it toward us. And then that moment of consciousness comes into being. It is born. Hmm? Again, you could see it as a moment or you could see it as an actual birth. Actual birth of a lifetime, like a person, you come out of the womb. Becoming happens, so that process of pulling the moments of consciousness toward you then results in a moment of birth. Whether you understand that to mean the birth of the next moment of consciousness or an actual literal birth, like coming out of the womb, that's what we mean here by birth. And then there is, of course, birth is the condition for aging and death. So if you're born, you are going to have to die. That is how it works. That's how it's worked for everybody so far. <laughs> we haven't seen any exceptions. So, death. And then what happens, then there is this next step. So we'll go to this beginning part, and this is where it can be a little complicated, so bear with me. Um, so you have, but death is not the end in Buddhism, right? So what has happened is that this particular stream of consciousness and this particular body is going to go away it's going to shut down and it's not going to continue to function but the karmic stream you could say the bundle of karmic energies is it needs to continue to express itself right there's some unresolved karma that has to be resolved and that is conditioned by this thing called ignorance that is that stream of consciousness is not a consciousness that understands fully the way that things work and therefore because of the ignorance or the unwiseness then there is sankara there are these ways that we make mental constructions So we make a mental framework, and based on that mental framework, again, we grasp at another moment of consciousness. And that moment of consciousness is the condition for name and form. So name and form just means form is the body, and name is the other aspects of mental experience that are not consciousness, things like attention, Things like perception, those feeling tones, again, come in here. So this whole process is said to be driven by karma, by the way that when we do something intentional, and that's what these sankharas are, we formulate an idea based on un unwiseness, based on non-understanding, we formulate concepts about the nature of reality that are wrong and then those those next moments of consciousness create this body and mind that are still working out 
the karmic results of that. So there are said to be two places where this circle can be broken. One place is here, between the feeling tone and the craving. So when the Buddha spoke about the Four Noble Truths, he said, there is the possibility of the end of craving. That end of craving leads to the end of suffering. So you can break the chain here by this non, again, non uh, push and pull, stopping the push and pull of the Vedana. Or you can break the chain here at ignorance. So this is why the Buddha speaks about the first step of awakening as knowing and seeing things as they are. You know and you see how reality actually works. And when you do that, then there's no more ignorance. Then there is wisdom. And once the consciousness is not impacted by this ignorance, then this whole cycle stops happening. Because again, if you're not, if you're in harmony, if you were in perfect harmony, which is what a Buddha is or an Arhant, a person is fully awakened, any person is fully awakened. If you're in complete harmony and understanding of how reality works, then there's no karmic leftover. There isn't this residual, this leftover, this stream that needs to go on, this pulling of the next moment of consciousness. So what's in between those moments of consciousness? If we were to stop pulling them and having them come together and feel continuous, Nibbana. Nibbana. The experience of the unconditioned. The unconditioned. So why do I tell you all this? So a couple of reasons. One is because... This process is accessible through this body and mind. You saw that over and over again on that circle, the Buddha is bringing up the body and the mind, the body and the mind. Everything that's happening in your life, birth, old age, death, contact, knowing something happening in your body, knowing something happening, some thought, all of those things are showing you how this works. It's literally accessible in any moment. So that's why mindfulness is the first, said to be the first factor of awakening. If you can be present and receptive to what's actually happening here, what's at work here in this body and mind, then wisdom will begin to arise. So it seems very, it can seem like a very complex conceptual scheme. You can do months of classes on this. I'm happy to do one. But the simplest way to actually begin to approach this wisdom is through your lived experience, through your senses, right? That's where I started, just like the meditation. 
You tune into what's happening at your senses, at your sense doors. What's happening there? What kind of contact is happening? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? Is it something that you're pulling toward you? Is it something that you're pushing away? Is it something that you just don't understand and it feels confused and kind of dull? What's going on? Study those things. Study those things. Because that's your doorway into this whole process of unlocking this chain that is driven by not understanding. Right? So, so that's one reason to talk to you about that. And the other reason is because sometimes it can feel like that, like these things are impossible. They're so far away from one's experience. Like the whole idea of dropping craving for experience, the whole idea of not wanting something to stay or wanting something to go away can seem really impossible or maybe not even desirable, right? Like what would that life look like? So I'll tell you a little story about something that happened to me a number of years ago. This was quite a while ago. Let's see. So it was before, it was around, I would say, it's around the beginning of 2004, maybe, end of 2003, beginning of 2004. And I went on a one-day retreat with some teacher that I didn't really know that well. And there was a yoga teacher there, too. And it was an okay retreat. It was fine. And uh, the following weekend, I thought, well, I'll just do a little more sitting, just like I did at the one-day retreat last weekend. I'll just do a little more sitting. I have some time. I don't have anything else on my calendar. So I sat down, and I noticed, wow, you know, my mind's a little bit, a little bit uh, agitated or a little bit unwilling to stay put. So I'm going to do a little more yoga because that's what we did last weekend, did some yoga, and that was helpful. So I did some yoga, and then I sat back down, and I put the dog, so at the time, Roscoe was my best buddy, and Roscoe, uh, I put him in his crate, because his crate was right next to where I sat, but that way he wouldn't like tap his little toes all around the house and stuff, he would just kind of lie down with me because he wasn't a good meditator he wasn't good at staying still when I was staying still so he put Roscoe in the crate but he was right next to me and I sat down again on my cushion and I faced the wall because that's how I had been trained in Zen and I took four breaths and at the end of that fourth breath something shifted and then i wasn't there anymore but the breath was there and the consciousness was there and the knowing was there and the sound was there but i wasn't there anymore and so some time passed, goodness knows how much time passed, because I had set my little timer, and my little timer was going off when I 
came out of this state, and who knows how long the little timer had been going off at that point. It was afternoon by then. And I got up, and I realized that I'd seen the five aggregates without the observer. And I didn't even have those words for it at that point, because I didn't have words hardly at all. Because time was moving at like one one hundredth of its usual speed. And, and there wasn't any Vedana. It wasn't like I had to try to let go of anything. There just wasn't any push or pull or positive or negative anymore. It was all just neutral Vedana. For days, it went on like this. I actually somehow managed to get to work on the third day. So that was Saturday morning. I managed somehow to get my clothes on and get to work on Monday morning. And they talked to me for a minute. And they thought I was on drugs. I'm not kidding you. They thought I was on drugs. They were like, what is going on with you? You have to go home. You can't talk to clients like this. So I went home. because I was too well to run my normal life. So it's so so I say this also because I want what I'm trying to say to you is we we do let go in a conscious way. That's important. Those those little bits of letting go throughout the day. Those are important. But ultimately, ultimately, the practice is leading us to a place of letting go that's effortless, that doesn't ask you to force anything out of your hand. It just shows you. It just shows you that there was nothing there to hold on to in the first place. You know, there's this funny saying from I forget which Zen master who says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like trying to hang it, meaning life, is like trying to hang, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, Christmas ornaments in space. You know, there's no place to do that. You see that there's no place to do that. Your sense of self is like that. It's like trying to hang Christmas ornaments in space. <laughs> it's that clear. So don't so 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 don't force the letting go either. The letting go comes from the wisdom and the wisdom comes from the practice and the practice is partly consciously letting go, intentionally letting go, but it's also partly just paying attention. Just being willing to be 100% there. Here actually, 100% here. Because this thing is working just like that. That thing that the Buddha saw, he didn't make that up. That's not his special little life. He didn't go around saying, oh, I'm the only person who could ever experience this. That's why you should worship me. No. What did he say? He said the opposite of that. 
He said, every single one of you can do this. Go sit down. <laughs> Don't meditate. You can do this. Because your life works like that too. And you don't need to wrap your intellect around it. You just need to be here. 100% here. And not in yesterday and not in tomorrow, but right here. And you never know when that moment is going to come. When that moment came in that, at that time, that particular experience that I had, I, I had no idea. None. None. Two weeks before that, I had been saying, you know, I've been practicing for like 16 years or something and nothing's ever happened. And I can't believe it. You know, <laughs> that's why I went on retreat. That's why I went on retreat that week, the week before. Because I felt like nothing was happening in my practice. Right? So what, so, so the karma is at work and we, by our practice, are putting the karma to work for us. We are using that mechanism in a skillful way so that we can begin to see. And then the we that sees drops off and just seeing sees. And it's peaceful. And until then, let go as you can, be present as you can, and don't force it. Don't force it. Right? If there's anything that the Buddha said, he said, I tried forcing it. It didn't work. Right? He tells us in his life story about leading up to the, to the enlightenment, all the hard stuff that he tried to force it. But that doesn't work. He told us very clearly to save us. <laughs> to save us from having to do all that mistake in practice. So there's a beautiful sutta, I'll close with this. There's a beautiful, beautiful sutta called the Sinsapa, Sissapa Leaves. The sutta, the Sissapa Leaves. I'm forgetting the number right now, but anyway. And the Buddha is in the forest, and he picks up a handful of leaves. They're standing in the forest, right? Completely surrounded by trees. He picks up a handful of leaves and he says, Are there more trees in the more leaves in the forest or in my hand? And of course, the the folks that are with him say, Well, Bante, there are definitely more leaves in the forest than in your hand. And the Buddha says, the things that I have known, that I have experienced, that I can know, are like the number of leaves in the forest. But the things that I teach are like the number of leaves in my hand. And why, he says, his rhetorical question, and why? <laughs> because I only teach what leads to peace. So you only need a handful of leaves, folks. That's all you need. Thank you. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.